You're listening to The 66, the podcast where we study the books of the Bible one at a time. I'm Andrew Kingsley alongside Drew Kaiser, and we are ministers at the Asheville Road Church of Christ in Leeds, Alabama. Today we are a little over halfway through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 13, and we have we have finished Jesus' public ministry, and we are getting into the private ministry of Jesus. That's correct, right? Right, right. Then we'll go through chapter 17. And then we get to the P.S. At no. The the book. No, then we got the passion ministry. Oh, yeah. Then the P.S. Then the postscript. Yeah, um, but today... Skipping, like, the, the main part there. I was just counting, yeah. I see, I'm, I'm not familiar with this whole P outline yet. I'm still working on it. But uh, we are in chapter 13 today, and there's a really interesting scene here uh, where Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet, and then he's going to talk about his betrayal, and uh, then we're also going to get Peter's denial in here. There's a lot of stuff, but you've got an interesting way for um, outlining this chapter, right? Yeah, I I think the best way to look at this, and I was talking with you about it before we started recording, you know, we're getting into a section of John that's less structured, more conversational, because what we're looking at in the private ministry is really a night's conversation. I mean, it sounds like, you know, the public ministry lasted about three years, so Mm -hmm. we think, okay, private ministry this long time, but we're talking about in chapters 13 through 17, one night's conversation. And like all conversations, it has an ebb and flow to it. It kind of, it's kind of loose. And uh, John preserves kind of the feel of that conversation as I would imagine it happened that evening. For that reason, I'm going to skip around a little bit more in the reading than I usually do and give it a structure to help our memories And so we're going to break it down into two parts. First of all, looking at Jesus at our feet, which is kind of an uncomfortable position for us to be in because we don't think Jesus should ever kneel down to our feet. But that's where we find him at the beginning of this chapter, at his disciples' feet. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the point, one of the main points that this chapter makes. And then secondly, we'll look at we at Jesus' feet, where uh, we're learning a couple of... uh, truths that he reveals over the course of this chapter. So that's that's the breakdown, and we'll start with Jesus at our feet, and we are going to start with verse 1, which says that it was before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come back from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know if you felt that, but it took John a while to get to the main verbs. Mm -hmm. What you have in the first three verses is a series of three participles. And you don't have to be a specialist in grammar to to feel that. You know, uh, and the participles are kind of progressive, and they, they reveal to us the motivations behind the main verbs, the main yeah. verbs being the, 
you know, rising from the table, taking a towel, washing the feet. You know, those those action verbs are motivated by these participles. Look at them. I'll break them down one, one more time. Verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world into the, uh, to the Father. So that first motivation, he knew he was going to be crucified the next day. Mm-hmm. We're on the eve of his crucifixion. Uh, the second participle, still verse 1, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. So despite their immaturity, he loved them anyway. And he wanted to do something to assure them of that love. Mm-hmm. So there's more motivation. The third participle is the word knowing in verse 3. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and going back to God. So he wasn't worried about his relationship with his Father or where he came from or his identity. He was completely secure in all of that. Mm-hmm. And with those things behind behind him, in his thoughts, in his mind, he began washing their feet. I do want to point out something real quick here before we get past it. Verse 2 uh, just kind of foreshadowing, I guess, of what's going to happen with Judas toward, I guess, at the end of this chapter when the chapter's over. Uh, just to keep that in the back of your mind as you read or as you listen to this, that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. When we get to verse 27, it's going to be brought up again in very similar terms, but it's a theme throughout this whole chapter. Judas is mentioned like here and there throughout the whole thing. Right, yeah, and the way I want to break this first section down is to look at the the three main characters of this chapter, and we just we just saw Jesus, of course, mm-hmm. you know, doing this remarkable thing of washing his disciples' feet, and Judas is another one. But before we get to Judas, of course, he comes up in the early in the chapter, but there's so much more that's going to be said about him. Before mm-hmm. we get to Judas, the second character, Peter, pops in. And Peter, um, he has an objection. So he came, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, so he's washing all the disciples' feet, Judas included. And he comes to Simon Peter, and he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? This is verse 6. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So Mm -hmm. there's the foreshadowing again towards Judas. But first, you know, you look at Peter, consistent with his personality throughout all four gospel accounts, He's impulsive. The word impetuous is used a lot in the commentaries. He's very outspoken. You know what word Lipscomb uses yeah. in his commentary. His This he, is a quote from David Lipscomb in his commentary on John from verse uh, 8. It says, he is stupid. Yeah, and he is because, I mean, he's just jumping from one end of the spectrum. For First of all, don't wash, don't wash my feet. No, no, not you. I'm better than... I'm better in, at humility than anybody here, so you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus rebukes him, and then he's like, wash everything. Wash, mm-hmm. it, wash it all. Fingernails, head, toes, mm-hmm. everything. And Jesus is like, look, you've no. been through the... Maybe he's referring to the cleansing ceremony, but I think he's just trying to get through with what he's doing. Mm-hmm. 
if you've bathed, I'll just take the feet, thank you very much, <laughs> and move on to the next disciple. Um, but he throws that little that little line in there in verse 11, or verse 10, you are clean, but not every one of you. And the word you there is in the plural, so he's not just talking to Peter, but to 11 of the 12. You, 11, are clean, but not all of you, not all of you. And that, of course, references Judas, third main character. But before we get to him, uh, go to the end of the chapter to get more of Peter. I want to take this in order of the characters. At the very end, verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Now, the reason he's asking this is because Jesus is saying, A little while I'm with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I'm going, you cannot come. In other words, he's going to die. Mm -hmm. And then maybe he's also referring to his ascension. But the death is really the, the, the emphasis here, I think, in the words that he's saying. And uh, Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So maybe Peter even realizes that he's talking about death. And so he's saying, you know, let's die together. I'm ready mm -hmm. to go that far. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Which I think is the most concise way that this is put in any of the gospel accounts. Luke has uh, probably the most detailed version of this where he says, Satan has requested that he might sift, sift you as wheat, but mm -hmm. I have prayed for you. And when you have, when you have recovered or when you have strengthened, uh, strengthened your brothers... Yeah. So um, you have that with Peter, which is very familiar to everybody listening, I'm sure. Now, we get to Judas, and we had that little statement in verse 10, which leads into verse 11, where John tells us he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said not all of you are clean. So later on, he, he speaks more about Judas in verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you, he says, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So he's not giving them this information that he knows the betrayer in order to stop the, the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. He's telling it to them as a sign that he is who he has been claiming to be. Just, yeah, just like, this isn't taking me by surprise. I know yeah. this is coming. It's kind of like the, the word in John 10 that we study where he says, no man's taking my life from me, but I, I give it up as my own accord. He's trying yeah. to show God's hand behind all of this. It's mm -hmm. a fulfillment of Scripture, and Jesus knows it's going to happen ahead of time. And he's like, going, I'm going on the record uh Mark it down, I said this, and they'll remember back, and it'll strengthen their faith. And then verse 21, after something really interesting happens at the table that involves several of the disciples and Jesus as well. He's troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You know, in my sermon this coming Sunday, I'm going to talk about Jesus' relationship with his disciples and how it involved transparency, and how remarkable it is to see the Son of God just, 
you know, express his feelings in this way. Because powerful men in our society today try to keep a tight lip about it, who they really are and how they feel. Mm-hmm. And he, he is troubled in his spirit. And he admits that the problem is betrayal. And the disciples look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, which is troubling in and of itself. I mean, they're thinking they're, they're not just thinking of Judas. There's so many potential betrayers in the group that, you know, they're not sure which one it is. Mm-hmm. And one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, and this is where John really starts referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this is John. He is reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So that is the basic content of Jesus at the disciples' feet. You know, mm-hmm. at, at their feet, washing them, and, you know, at their feet, we'll probably talk about this later, you know, reclining at table. Yeah. Uh, somebody's nasty feet were in his face, probably, mm-hmm. as he was eating, or, or behind his shoulder, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, an uh, uncomfortable position for us to be in, but you see how he was telling Peter, if you don't s- l- allow me to serve you, to die for you, this is where it becomes practical for us. Mm-hmm. If you can't trust me to do this for you, then you'll have nothing to do with me. And, um, you know, that that's a, a lesson in and of itself. Well, let's turn to the second part, which is shorter, we at Jesus' feet, because that's a more comfortable position, and that's what we see in a couple of lessons that he gives, uh, little statements that he that he uses to teach the disciples. And the first one is serve one another. And this, of course, is an application on the action that he has taken in washing the disciples' feet. Mm-hmm. Starting in verse 12, he asks them if they understand what he had done. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. So, first of all, at his feet, we learn to serve one another. And then secondly, love one another. That's verses 34 and 35. And the context here is he says, I'm leaving you. So this is what he wants them to do in his absence. Mm -hmm. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when we or they are sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teachings, he leaves them with those two things. Serve one another and love one another. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, just to sum all of that up, first of all, we looked at Jesus at our feet, and we saw it through Jesus' actions and Peter and Judas. And then we sat at Jesus' feet and learned these two lessons, mm-hmm. to serve one another and to love one another. And that basically summarizes John chapter 13. question marks that I know have been raised in your mind as well as ours. When people read through the Bible systematically, they always come up with these questions, and sometimes it stops their progress, and the way that we've kept it from stopping our progress is we've just put into the podcast a section where we can just uh, go off the rails for a little Mm -hmm. while. And it's a lot of fun, but we always try to get back on track by the end of the podcast, so forgive us if these questions haven't occurred to you, but they certainly have been on our mind, and there are at least three really compelling questions in this particular chapter, starting with verse 1. And this is one that, you know, maybe only Bible geeks worry about, but um, he says, this this has always confused me, and I think I've finally gotten it figured out, but John says that it was before the Feast of the Passover, so I believe that he's talking about the you know right before mm-hmm. as they were washing up and getting ready for that particular feast. But this has caused a lot of confusion because John refers to the feast of the Passover after this event as still to come. Uh it's referenced again in chapter 13 verse 29 and then much later in chapter 18 verse 28. And then in chapter 19, verse 14, as they're crucifying him, you know, they're still waiting on the Feast of the Passover, and that's after they have finished the dinner that we're reading about right here. So what is going on here? Uh, When is Passover? What was the custom? And so on. Well, here's what I found. The Feast of the Passover officially began on the 14th day of Nisan, or Nisan, when the Paschal Lamb was slain, that's the that's the feast that commemorated the tenth plague, which delivered the Israelites from Egypt, instituted in Exodus chapter twelve. And you can read that date and all the rules about the observation of the feast of the Passover in the Old Law. Now there was another feast, very closely related to the feast of the Passover, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and uh, it was related to all of those events also, and it began on the 15th day of Nisan and lasted seven days. So the whole celebration is an eight-day celebration encompassing two separate feasts, the Feast of the Passover, which was instituted first, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which you read about, I believe, in the book of Leviticus. Now together... That's eight days, and they were so closely related to each other and, and took up the same space on the calendar. So the terms Passover and unleavened bread to the Jewish mind came to be used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And we, we think, well, why did they do that? Because we're thinking very technical about these things. 
but John is writing in a non-technical way about a non-technical way of life. You know, yeah. this is the way they talked. This is the way they spoke of these days and this time. They understood what was going on. And the only reason we don't understand exactly what is going on here is simply because we're not immersed in that culture. Um, now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already revealed to us that Jesus was arrested on the same night that he ate the Passover meal with his disciples. Uh, that's in Matthew twenty-six seventeen and following. So that would have to have been on a Thursday because we know doing the counting backwards from the resurrection that he was crucified on Friday. And uh, John, so John is writing about the actual Passover meal in which the Paschal lamb was sacrificed and eaten and all of the, you know, you read more about the preparation for the meal in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they don't include this foot washing scene. So John, because that has already been written, John, you know, emphasizes the foot washing, mm-hmm. the, the, the part they left out. And so that that's what it is. Now, whenever he's talking about the, the Passover later on in chapters 18 and 19, for example, he's speaking in terms of the Sabbaths, maybe, uh, uh, that are in the, that, those seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you can reconcile everything. The only other option you've got is to say that John just was not a very good writer, that he you know, lost track of the days in this account from one chapter to the next. And that's not a plausible explanation. Yeah, I'll go with option one. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, uh, what do you think? Does that make sense? Makes perfect pretty sense good, to me. Pretty good sense. Yeah, these are all things that are that are. I don't want to say. I mean, I guess above my head because I, I mean, I read it. And I think before the feast of the Passover, and I think okay before the feast of the Passover. Well, it's really yeah. not that important. <laughs> To us, it's, is it? I mean, it's not important. You enjoying your tea there? Oh yeah, they can hear it. Uh, <laughs> it. You know, it's it's not that important to to understand what's going. What is the, I think the message is, that's really yeah. being? Taught. It is important from the standpoint of though, if you have somebody coming in and trying to say John doesn't know what he's doing, it's very important to make sure that we know what's going on here. And it's and always confused me: Passover yeah. versus unleavened bread. Mm-hmm. So. I think that, you know, we just have to get comfortable with the fact that sometimes the Jews use those terms interchangeably. And it worked both yeah. ways also. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about foot washing. There are not many, but there are a few religious groups that practice foot washing as a sacrament and believe that when, when Jesus said, <clears throat> excuse me, when Jesus said in verse 15, I've given you an example that you also should do as I've done to you, that he was speaking specifically about washing feet. That is what they should do. And, um, and so they have foot washings. Yeah, they have foot washings. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I even heard about a ladies' day that uh, they uh, gave each other pedicures. You know, not, mm. not too... Um, you know, say we're fulfilling the exact meaning of this, but to serve one yeah. another that way. Yeah. But this yeah, is yeah. not a pedicure. This is like some really, really dirty, messed up feet. Yeah. That have been on the road in a day when walking was the main mode of transportation. Yeah. Feet are gross. They they weren't getting their toenails painted or 
getting a scrub or anything like that. And mm-hmm. so I don't think that's a comparison at all. No. Um, I think that the foot washings that occur today are not as functional as what we're reading about here, but more ceremonial. Yeah. It's a kind of a quick dip in the dip of the feet and a towel off and move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. I see Jesus actually performing the work of a servant and giving comfort and cleanliness to these men. Mm-hmm. That would be very demeaning to somebody. Right. So I always have a problem with people enforcing these customary uh, traditions on us today and not really doing them. A parallel example would be the headdresses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some religious groups that demand that the women have head coverings, but the head coverings that they are wearing in their assemblies are nothing like the head coverings demanded by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm getting a little mm-hmm. off subject here, but if you're going to wash, wash feet the way because you believe that that's what Jesus is teaching here, then you've got to wash feet the way he was washing feet. And that's mm-hmm. not just a dip and a and rub down, but like some, some real scrubbing here to get them clean. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's, I think it's obvious that I don't believe he's instituting an ordinance of foot washing here. Um, that was already a custom in that land, mm-hmm. and he was merely using the custom to show the proper service, uh, the proper spirit of, of service, Washing feet was an act of hospitality in that land in those times. It has never been looked upon as an act of hospitality in Western culture. Right. And uh, if we were to adopt it, it would be a very awkward thing that would be unfitting in our worship assemblies. And by the way, this wasn't at a worship assembly either. This was in the upper room as they were eating the Last Supper. Right. Um, no evidence, by the way, that the churches of the New Testament practiced foot washing as an ordinance. Uh, looked it up. The earliest mention is found in the decrees by a council of bishops in Spain in about 306 in which it was condemned. Hmm. That's the earliest reference, 300 years after this event and a condemnation. So it's a red hmm. flag. You know, I don't think that we're looking at something that we... We're missing the point if we just wash yeah, feet. This is, we miss a lot of opportunities. Yeah, the the idea is definitely that Jesus is humbling himself to show them the importance of service. And then he's saying, you know, truly I say to you in verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master. And says, you know, if I've done this, you guys need to do this. You call me Lord, this is how he starts off. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. So if I'm doing this for you guys, you should be doing it for one another. With the idea of I am serving you, I am fulfilling the role. Like you said, in this kind of in this culture, it was degrading. It was the job of a slave, a servant, to wash your feet when you came in the door. Mm-hmm. Something you know, a, not a very pretty, not a very uh, a nice job to have. If you have a first century version of Mike Rowe going around with a camera and doing dirty jobs, <laughs> this would probably be one of them. Yeah, and Jesus did it. And tells them this, it's not just the foot washing, obviously. Because everything that Jesus has taught about the old law up to this point has been about not the letter of the law, but the why for the law. Mm -hmm. You know, what's behind it. And so certainly in here, he's not going to say, 
Okay, I washed your feet, so now every day or once a week, y'all have to wash each other's feet. Yeah, and if if he is instituting it, again, this gets back to the parallel of the head coverings. Mm-hmm. What he's instituting is something we should do before dinner, not something we should do in our Sunday morning worship services. Right. Uh, there's another reference that we've already discussed when we were talking about uh, John 12, but we referenced back to Luke 7, and we were talking about the contrast and the comparisons between the event in Luke 7 and the event in John 12. Right. And in Luke 7, he's at Simon's house, and he says, You gave me no water for my feet. It was at a dinner again. It's very clear that this is a custom that they had connected with dinner. It was a it was a form of hospitality. It was menial service, and that's what he's trying to instill in us. If we think we've completed our service to one another by washing feet, I really think that's getting off easy. Yeah, you know, and and totally missing the point of verse fifteen, which is to do services for one another. Mm-hmm. Fill fill the gaps of. What is needed for one another. Yeah, and this is just a shadow of the service that he is about to do. You take 13 and verse 1. Uh, he loves his own here in the world. He loved them to the end. Mm-hmm. So here in a few chapters, we're going to get an even bigger show. Uh, and I don't say show as in the idea of like, you know, um, something for entertainment or something like that. I'm just saying to serve as an example we're going to get a bitter, bigger example of Jesus fulfilling the role of a servant for our benefit by being killed, number one. Uh, he's pretty much, I'm thinking along the lines of something that you mentioned in the first section. If you cannot deal with, if you cannot allow me to wash your feet and fulfill this role of a servant, if you can't let me do that and still believe in me as your Lord, then there's no way that there, you know, that you will believe if I die on a cross. You know, mm-hmm. almost kind of a maybe trying to warm them up to the idea of what was coming because certainly he's talking. And it about still it. didn't work, you know, because yeah. uh, Peter and the rest of them, John seems to have come back, but they they all fled. They could not deal with this idea of their master dying in such a, a horrible way. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the feast of, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke put more emphasis on this than John, but this is the same feast in which he instituted the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. I think I'll just hit that and not dwell on that too long. But I'm sure somewhere down the road we'll talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm-hmm. But that happened this same evening. It's a busy, busy night for Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. And then still, we have the prayer in Gethsemane. Oh yeah, later. And the arrest and half of the trials, at least. Yeah. Um, also, you know, we got to deal with Da Vinci because he's got you know this famous painting of this evening, the scene. After the foot washing, we presume. Oh, but, yeah. You know, the Last the Supper, and everybody's sitting in upright chairs around a table, and nobody's sitting, you know, nobody's sitting on the side that we're looking at so yeah. that they don't block the view. Mm-hmm. It's a great painting, you know, it's really interesting to look at. It's just not representative of what it actually looked like. They were sitting at yeah. a low to the ground table um, on cushions all the way around the table. 
And uh, I think it would have been, you know, how many were present? 13. So there probably would have been three, six, nine on each side. And then, and then, um, well, I don't know where the, you know, I don't know where the odd guy went, but there generally were mm-hmm. three around each side. Yeah. And at the head of the table, you're going to have the main, the, the presider or the president of the, of the feast and one person on his left and one on his right. Now this is really interesting for me to think about because they were they were leaning on their on their left arm, right? So that they could use their right hand to eat the food. So they're leaning on their right hand. That would mean that um that uh if you're facing Christ, he's leaning on his left. I'm really going to need your help on this cuz I'm having trouble. I'm really uh, trying to concentrate on this. He's leaning on his now. left, okay? And and he's eating with his right. And John, I'm acting this out right now. By the way, John, does it say okay? Does it say John is in his bosom or that he is in John's bosom? Uh, so the disciples, Jesus. one of his disciples, were reclining at a table close to Jesus, at Jesus' side. So. At Jesus' side, so at the bosom of Jesus. And this may be a stretch, but it appears that John had his head in Jesus' bosom. So he would have been to the right of Jesus. He would have been to the right of Jesus if you're, but not if you're looking at Jesus, which All is right. the way to to establish um, positions of prominence. Is so as you're looking the at them, he's on the left, a, a special place, but not the place of prominence, not the highest spot. That would have been now, Peter. Now that's what everybody thinks, but listen to what Peter does. So the disciples, one of the disciples, uh, so verse 24, Peter motioned to him, to John. Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now if Peter was, I guess if he was on the other side of Jesus, that makes sense. But it makes even more sense if Peter's like on the other end of the table. Yeah. I mean, like a cross he, I feel like if Peter was sitting right by Jesus, he would have asked Jesus himself. Yeah. But he doesn't ask Jesus any motions to John. So I don't know where Peter was sitting, but I don't think he was sitting in that right-hand place. But somebody within the arm's reach of Jesus was sitting in that spot. Hmm. And who did he hand the morsel of bread to? That's pretty interesting. Judas Iscariot. Yeah. Judas was the guy who had the money bag. Judas was the guy from Judea, had connections in Jerusalem, dealings with the chief priests and elders and the Sanhedrin. Mm-hmm. And I think that the seating arrangement was as follows. John on the left, Jesus in the middle, Judas on the right. I can't prove it, but mm-hmm. it makes sense since Peter is motioning to John not talking to Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus is able to hand... We know John was up there. And he was able to hand Judas the morsel of bread. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a huge table, but you know Judas wasn't clearly on the other end. And the way they were positioned, it would have been difficult for Jesus to to reach across to any other position but the one on his right. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Now, I don't know what that means... Except that, you know, having 
except maybe proving the truth of the proverb that Jesus repeated many, many times. He who is first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And, you know, it kind of speaks to the... It's a subtle statement about all that's going on here. You know, Jesus is trying to teach them that the lowly position is best, and the worst guy in the room is in the highest position. Yeah, that would definitely make sense. And uh, by the time... You know, the supper's over. The best seat is empty because mm-hmm. halfway through the dinner, Judas gets up and leaves. Yeah. There's all kinds of interesting thoughts, you know, if you try to do the seating arrangement in your head. Yeah. And it's probably worth mentioning that John's probably not asking Jesus who it is at the tone of voice that we are talking. No. You know, it's very likely, you know, you have Peter motioning to him. Yeah, the fact that Jesus is leaned, or that uh, John is leaned up next to Jesus, this is probably said where no one else can hear, and obviously Jesus' answer is probably given at a level that nobody else can hear. I would think. Because they still don't know. I mean, it says uh, in verse 28, nobody knew why he said this to him. I mean, it's still... Possible. But in verse 27, he says to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Mm-hmm. So they're communicating. Yeah, that's Not being very clear about it to the disciples. That's what I'm saying. I think Judas knows what he's talking about here. Yeah, I, I think that maybe Jesus had said this, or that, you know, John and Jesus' conversation here might almost be like a sidebar. You know, mm-hmm. that you would see in the movies where yeah. there's two people talking like right next to someone and they don't hear them, obviously just for the sake of the movie. But here, you know, it looks like this is a conversation between the two of them and he gives a morsel to him, to Judas, and then John at least is going to know. And then John's probably going to tell Peter later because, you know, Peter said, hey, ask him who he's talking about. So we know at least two of the disciples now know that Judas is going to be the one to betray. So when they show up, here in a few chapters, the Garden of Gethsemane is not going to be a surprise to those two guys, anyway. Yeah. You want to do the devil thing? Yeah, this one is... I think this is probably the most challenging question out of this chapter. Uh, well, without the, question, yeah. Definitely. Is what we find in verse 2 and again in verse 27, with Satan putting it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, then it goes on to tell the story. Then you get to verse 27, right after Judas takes the morsel, verse 27 says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. So, looks like at the beginning of the chapter, Satan had given him the idea Verse 27, now he's going to do it. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know, maybe Judas did hear what Jesus said. And then when Judas got the morsel, he was really offended and upset. Saying, you think I'm the one that's going to betray you? Fine, I'll betray you. Hmm. You know, there's a whole lot of things going on here, but... Is this like mind control with the devil? Has Judas lost his free will at this point? What's going on? How did Satan enter into him? How did Satan 
Uh, well, to start with, how did he put it into the heart of Judas? And then in verse 27, are we talking about possession? Are we talking about Judas's loss of the control of his mind or something else? Okay, so let's do a process of elimination. A little bit of deduction here. Okay. First of all, God created us in his own image, and part of that involves free will, the ability to make up our own minds. Right. Secondly, God is gracious and kind and patient towards us, not wanting anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants all to to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's obvious that Jesus wanted that for Judas as well. So if he could stop it, it's obvious to me that he would have done everything in his power to stop the devil from forcing Judas to do something. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, the devil has no power over anybody. I mean, I'm sorry. The devil has no power over God. There are numerous examples of that, such as, um, you know, the book of Job, where the devil has to ask permission to, to hurt Job, and God says, only so far, and then he comes back again, well, if you'd let me touch his body, yeah, yeah okay, you can do that, but don't take his life, and the devil does exactly what God tells him to do. Uh, he's obviously under the power of Christ when... Christ tells Peter, I believe it's in Luke chapter 21, that the devil is asked to sift Peter like wheat. So he is, he is asked for this. He's asking for permission because he's not God. He's not the anti-God. There's no dualism here. It's God is God and everything else is created and everyone else is under his power. Only God is all-powerful. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know that that has answered anything, but it did eat up some time. Yeah, I think it. I do think that that rules out the fact that Judas has lost his free will. I don't think this is where. Yes, Satan. Has Let's been. take that off the table. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that's. I don't think Satan's allowed to just take control of Judas, and it's like, oh, poor Judas, he was possessed by the devil. Yeah. For this to happen to him, but. Somebody could bring up demon possession as an obvious case in which people are helpless against the powers of the devil. Yeah. Then it would totally blow away everything I just said about free will. Because when you get into some of the examples of demon possession in the gospel accounts, and even in the book of Acts, there are people who cannot control themselves, throwing themselves into fire, having epileptic fits or whatever, against Mm -hmm. their will. But Judas is obviously not under that kind of influence. Right. You know, whatever that is, and and I like to believe that, you know, all, all those people were healed by Jesus and saved by him so that they could have their free will back. But whatever's going on with Jesus, he's not behaving in the same manner as the guy, the demoniac from the Gadarenes, who's breaking chains chain and running around that. naked and out of his mind. You know, he is behaving as a man who is sane and evil. Yeah. I think a parallel to this is in First Chronicles 21, 
where Satan incites David to number Israel. And the word incite does not ex- suggest control, but influence. Gives him a, a temptation almost. Yeah, you can incite me to set my house on fire, but I'm still responsible. I'm going to be yeah. responsible. I had control over that. Yeah, kind of like the guy that you go to school with that's the one that's getting everybody else to do the things that get them in trouble. Yes. But he never actually does the things. He's just the mastermind and gets other people to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, all of these theories, and I, I like the inciting theory, um, but all of these theories are assuming that Jesus is thinking of the devil in a personal way. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's another possibility here that he's being used figuratively or metaphorically in the sense that, you know, just evil in general. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, like in the Lord's Prayer, the last part of it is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some translations say deliver us from the evil one, and some say deliver us mm-hmm. from evil. Because it's so vague there, is it the... the you know, in, in John eight forty four, he's already talked about, you know, every lie comes down from the father of lies. And so mm-hmm. there is a sense in which all of it belongs to him since he's the author of it, just as God is the author of all good things. We attribute all good to God. Mm-hmm. We should attribute, in some sense, all evil to the devil and that he started this mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do. it does seem like he's speaking of the devil as a, in a personal sense. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Let me ask you what you think about this. This is a quote, another quote from Lipscomb uh, on the way that Satan would have influenced Judas. He says, We are not responsible for the evil thoughts suggested by the devil, but we are responsible for harboring it and acting upon it. Now, I'm not convinced that Satan puts thoughts into our head that we don't want there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because it sounds like, from what it sounds like here, is Satan has the ability to plant thoughts of temptation into our minds. Here's what I believe. I think there is a problem with what he says there. I, I, I agree with the fact that we're, that temptation is not a sin, but it's acting on temptation that is the sin. Mm-hmm. I'm just not sure that the devil made me do it or the devil put it in my right. head is always the, the, the correct cause. That's what I'm thinking direct, along the The lines direct of. cause. The direct cause. Because I believe that something changed on the cross and the devil was very limited in his power and to throw out a string of verses that people can look up later... I would include in that Genesis 3.15, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Colossians 2.15, Hebrews 2.13-14, and Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and following, which symbolically paints a picture of what's going on now, where the dragon is cast into a bottomless pit and chained with a chain Mm -hmm. and bound up. For a thousand years. I think he is bound right now in a way that he was not bound prior to the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Jesus triumphed over him in death. 
He took away the power of him who had the power of death. And I don't believe Satan is, is doing what he was doing before Jesus died. Yeah. Um, now, so, but, but also Paul does refer to him as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, after the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And Peter warns us to be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking right. someone to devour. First right. Peter five eight. Now I'm aware of those passages, but I believe those are speaking of the personal devil in terms of his influence over this world, not in terms of his actual ability to in- encounter us and enter our minds and mess with us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are other passages in Revelation that talk about smoke or locusts coming out of that bottomless pit that he's been thrown into. And I believe, I'd like to think of it that way, that what we're getting is the smoke of the damage that he has already done rather than the actual damage that he is directly doing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, actions have consequences, and the right. things that he has done over the last millennia have consequences that we're experiencing today. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have learned his tricks, and he has his disciples just as Jesus has his disciples. Right. And I, I think there's definitely a line to be drawn. Because that, that's you hit the nail on the head of what I was trying to bring up a minute ago when you said this whole devil made me do it idea. I don't think that's a valid thing now. For sure, I don't, Satan, I don't think, enters our mind and takes control. I think maybe, uh, I mean, I don't know, but then we start talking about providence and does the devil work providentially to put, because, you know, we'll say all the time, well, this and this happened today and I'm convinced that that was the devil trying to get me to do this and this and this. And then that same person the next day, well, you know, all this great stuff happened to me today, and I'm convinced that that's God giving me an opportunity, or this and that and the other. So well, we, you bring up something slightly different. Why is it that we think of the devil that way when we say the devil takes control? But when we say, and isn't there a song that we sing, to God take control? Yeah. We never understand that in terms of possession. Right. Like, when we ask, we pray for God to take control, we understand that we have to exercise our powers of volition to participate in his control over our lives. Right. So when the devil takes control of me, it works the same way, just in the opposite direction. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. Because I'm thinking and I'm thinking about James chapter 1 here when he talks about being tempted. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin's fully grown, it brings forth death. So, I mean, we don't have here, each person is tempted when Satan does blank, 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 when he does this and this and this. Our own desire is what gets us. And you read Ephesians, uh, where Paul there is talking about the flesh versus the spirit, um, same way in Galatians as well. But there's this big... Uh, really more so in Galatians, this big idea of, you know, the works of the flesh are against the works of the Spirit. And I think we choose one of those things to follow, and Judas definitely chose the the wrong portion here. I definitely think he was in his right mind, not possessed, had every chance 
to change his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and today we have, we, we don't have the same situation that he had, e- even if the devil was personally working on him. Right. I don't think he personally works on us. And, I, and I, when you said James, it reminded me of a text that will destroy this whole idea of the devil made me do it, which is James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right. That means he does not have control over you. Right. He is not all powerful. You can resist him, and that goes out to anybody, and he will flee from you. So there's no, you know, possession or any of that that, that we have to be concerned about. So Judas has made a big mistake here. Judas is responsible, and right. he's paying for, for his sins. Um, we went way over time on that, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean... I hope, I hope you all enjoyed listening to that, and when we come back, we'll hit some lessons very quickly before our time is up. So we don't have much time left in this episode, so we're going to get through some of these applications very quickly. The first, I think, falls right here in verses 7 through 11, Jesus' and Peter's interchange about the washing. Where Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterward you will. And so Peter, a theme throughout his life is, he might understand a kernel of truth in some of the teachings of Jesus, but he doesn't really understand it fully. And it reminds me of myself a lot. And I think everyone's walk with Christ. There are things that we, maybe we hear or we read some of the teachings of Jesus and we think, okay, I've got that. I understand that. And we get really excited about it and we start telling everybody about it. Or maybe we start applying it into our life and then maybe a couple years go by. Maybe it's just a few weeks, a few months. And we realize, wait, that's not the end of the story. Or maybe I had this not exactly right. You know, maybe I, I jumped in too quickly on this. And, you know, we forget, I think, a lot of times that our Christian walk is very steady and a lot of times very slow-paced growth. Peter's growth is very um, slowly paced throughout the stories of the gospel. Um, but look but, where he wound up. Right. You know, just uh, real encouraging there mm-hmm. to see... and. That's why Peter is one of the best loved characters in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Let me give you four quick points on service, since that seems to be the overall theme of the of the uh, of the book of the chapter. the The first one is our service ought to come unannounced, and that's kind of a subtle point that comes from those participles that kind of sneak in on us. You mm-hmm. know, they precede the 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 actions and he doesn't there's no big announcement everybody get your shoes off or you know everybody look at me uh jesus just knowing these things and thinking about these things and loving these men gets a towel gets a water basin and humbly begins washing their feet 
Yeah. That's how service ought to be done. Number two, uh, service means personal involvement. He says in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's mm-hmm. talking about them personally doing the work. Don't don't delegate this off. And you know, Peter's got you know maybe a servant or something. He's like, you know, uh, John, I'm gonna have my uh, servant girl over at your house later on, and she's gonna wash those, those feet. No, mm-hmm. this is personal involvement. Number three. Hey, can I can I put these in here real quick? Yeah. Uh, just other verses to reference. We don't have time to read them, but. The woes that Jesus gives to the scribes and Pharisees are good things to uh, to refer to there for that point you just made in Matthew 23 about you know delegating out, getting other people to do things that you don't want to do. Um, and then also for the first point you made about not announcing it, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, good things to go and read mm-hmm. yeah. to go along with those points. Do it quietly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, service requires unselfishness. You know, this was the most unselfish thing in the world that could be done. And the reason nobody else had done it is because they were all arguing, probably, uh, some people say probably for the third time on this evening, about who was the greatest when you put all four gospel counts together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they were probably arguing as Jesus began doing this. Yeah, I'd so, say Philippians 2, 1 through 11 for that one. Yeah, that's a good one, yes. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bible today. Just, just throwing one out for everything. <laughs> Trying to offer something to help you out here. <laughs> and then finally, in, in one that we really haven't talked about, but everybody knows the truth of this, who has tried service. The final lesson is that service results in ultimate happiness. Look at verse 17. He says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed means fortunate or happy. So if you mm-hmm. live a life of service... You're blessed, you're fortunate, you're happy. It is well with you. You have the peace that surpasses all understanding. The most miserable people on earth are the people who live for themselves. Right. So it's a very important motivation for service. And our motivation ought not to be, you know, what's in it for me, because then it's not the kind of service we're reading about in the Bible. But Mm -hmm. you should know that you have nothing to lose in helping somebody else. Yeah. Uh, So that's quick. I know we got through the practical part really quickly, and maybe we should think more about more practical application, less thinking and Well, there's uh, a lot of good thinking stuff on this. Yeah, there's a lot of good applications. Oh, we always say that, though. I mean, if you want to hear more application, send us a comment we or would, an email. We'll do a yes. whole episode on service. I like seeing that on Twitter. I like yeah. seeing it through email. Um, but you... You know, send it out there. Write a review that'll really help us in our standings. Right. Which we need some help. My goal is for somebody to type in the sixty-six and the number sixty-six in iTunes, and we're the first podcast to come up. You know, since that's the name of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that right now nice. there's all these weird things that have no business beating us in the in the rankings. The devil's so a few a few yeah. The devil's in iTunes. He incited iTunes. Yeah. To do this, and some of those are devil-sponsored programs that I think are coming up before ours. Oh, really? Not good. Well, you know, I don't, I don't. Know. <laughs> you know, review helps, ratings help, uh, spread the word. Send us a tweet. The handles at the sixty-six podcast. Right. Websites the sixty-six dot net, and uh, we are looking forward to finishing up the book of John really soon. 
Uh, we are in the last week, and I know there's several chapters to go, but uh, next week we're going to do something very ambitious. We're going to try to cover chapters 14 through 16 all in one time, not because we're trying to rush through this, but because we can do something really special and important in the understanding of those three chapters if we treat them all together. So I hope that you'll join us. It'll be an interesting conversation next time on the 66.